Let's go to our God in prayer and ask him for his blessing on the preaching of his word. God, you have given us your word and we, as we will discover more and more today, um, your word is a working word. God, I pray that even as you said, let there be light, we pray that you would shine the light of your word on our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit today, that you would lead us to Christ. In his name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is God's word. You may be seated. Familiar verse. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Uh, We are not God. It comes as a surprise to you. We would like to be. Uh, Perhaps we wouldn't like, I know I wouldn't like the responsibility of being God, but at least maybe I could control my own life. That would be nice. Now, of course, it's... (laughs) Yeah, for one moment. <laughs> it's been a few weeks since uh, we've been in Habakkuk. So uh, last time Habakkuk had confessed, God had responded to his concerns, and then Habakkuk confessed uh, that God has indeed ordained the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as judgment for Israel or for Judah. And he even went on and confessed his faith that God would not completely annihilate Judah or God's people forever, but that they would, in fact, not die, was his confidence, because of God's promises. But he has still, even though God has answered some of his questions, he has a lingering question in his mind. How can the God who is too pure to look at evil allow this unrighteous nation, the nation of Babylon, to to be prosperous, to succeed, to conquer the nations, and particularly the people of God? How will they continue to afflict the nations, this gluttonous nation filling his nets, overflowing? Will God use these people as a wicked tool forever? Now, there are two options when we come to to difficult things, when we don't understand the Lord. Option number one is we can believe God. Option number two is we can believe ourselves. In our perception, many times God is slow. He's slow of pace. Why are you not doing this faster? Or... Perhaps he is unjust. Why is there, there's this incongruency between what I perceive to be just and what you are doing? And the question at the crux of this text is, do we believe God 
or do we turn in pride to our own way? In God's answer here to Habakkuk, we have really a richness of understanding from which to draw, um, especially during those difficult seasons when we don't understand God. We are reminded uh, once again that God is true. So the first thing here that Habakkuk or God calls Habakkuk's attention to is his word. Um, And it's not always easy to believe God, but faith always begins with God's word, God's speaking. That's where our faith begins is really with God and his word. So the first point this morning, the first um, exhortation from this passage is to simply hear the word of the Lord. When we're in those trials of, of not understanding God, not understanding his ways, we begin by hearing the word of the Lord. As I prayed this morning, God's word is a working word. It affects what he, he intends. It's, it's really awe-inspiring. Our word, when I, when, I, when I say something, when words come out of my mouth, nothing happens. I may be able to convince you of something, but when God speaks, he says, let there be light, and there's light. His words affect actions. His words are working words, which is encouraging also as a preacher, preaching God's word, because as a preacher, I'm a sower, not a grower. <laughs> God's word is what takes effect in people's lives. He says in Isaiah 55:11, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth and shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God here in answering Habakkuk, um, it, this is not a debate with Habakkuk. This is not chit-chat with his prophet. You know, let's work this out. This is a call on the prophet of God to herald the working words of God, to, to broadcast with clarity for the people of God, God's working words. He says in verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. It's really a difficult verse to interpret, and there's a variety of opinions. Um, so, some say he's saying, make it so clear that a running man could read it as he's running by, kind of like make it a big billboard so you can see it. Um, the other option there is make it so plain that a courier can read it as he runs along. Um, I, I think what he's saying, my opinion, is that He's telling Habakkuk to, to record the vision, to record God's working words, and to record it so that a herald can take it to people. And quite possibly to record it so, as we're doing here, future generations can read the vision. Now, no one's really certain, from what I could tell, um, what the contents of the vision are. In verses, four, It could be verses 4 and 5. It could be all of chapter 2. It could be the whole book. Um, I lean towards either chapter 2 or the whole book because he says in verse 4 that something will come to pass. Well, there's nothing really in verses 4 and 5 that's going to come to pass. But whatever the case, God's response here to Habakkuk is, Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Habakkuk uh, is a recipient of the word of the Lord. In his confusion and his perplexity, he receives the word of the Lord, and he's also a conduit. And it's also to Judah and to the whole world. 
So as I said, God's speech is really that first event in our faith. That's where it begins. It's God, God's working word speaking to us. God is the initiator of faith. If he says, let there be light, there will be light. If he says, let there be life, there will be life. Not only life, but judgment as well. The, the running of the herald um, can be either heeded or he can be ignored. Men bring judgment on themselves by pride and rebellion and ignorance of God's word when God's word comes to them and they reject it. And all of this is within God's will. His word will not return to him void. So it's not as though as if God's word goes out calling for repentance and some don't repent that God didn't get what he wanted. I think the primary purpose of Habakkuk's book, however, is to encourage those faithful few in Judah who are still remaining to press on in faith despite this onslaught of attack by the Chaldeans. The wicked in the land had already heard God's word through Jeremiah and they had rejected it. And so, in a sense, at this point, the the judgment train has left the station. This is going to happen. Hebrews brings our text to bear on us, to New Testament Christians, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Um, And as we wait for the second coming of the Lord, it says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have a need of insurance, insurance, pardon me, endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So we see here again, you may receive what is promised. God's promise, his working word, is the foundation of our faith. And we have to believe that. So the question for us then is, where do we struggle to believe the Word of God? Um, Perhaps it's in the most basic principles. I think we also all struggle with with the most basic principles of the Gospel. Some of us, maybe we have a hard time believing that we are as bad as God says we are. That's what the word confession means. Agreeing with God about our sin. Perhaps we're relatively moral people and it's really hard for it, for it to get into our souls that I am wicked under the just condemnation of God. Or perhaps others of us, we feel as though the blood of Jesus covers uh, most sins but not the most heinous of crimes, not my crimes. And there's that lingering guilt in our souls over a few particular sins and we would rather torment ourselves over them as a kind of penance than to lay them down at the foot of the cross. The call of the text here is to believe God. Believing God begins by hearing the word of God. And that's at the heart of the gospel. And we can believe the word of God because it's certain. He says in verse 3, it's certain. For still the the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This would be a good verse to memorize. Having a constant awareness that all of the events 
in the world unfold according to God's perfect timing would save us a lot of heartache. Because waiting on God is hard, but, but our anxiety makes it worse. If we could learn that, that familiar phrase, be still and know that I am God, that would be such a burden off on us. The vision awaits its appointed time. Isn't that interesting? Appointed time. Every event unfolds according to the plan in appointed time, precisely when God intends. And that's because it has been decreed by that working word of God. Uh, As a pastor of, of... a church named Trinity Reformed Church. I feel like there's always like I'm starting a conversation just by being that person with the, the word reformed. And I've been in many of those conversations about Calvinism, Reformed theology, and, and oftentimes the response I get, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't really matter. How does that affect my day-to-day life and relationship with God? As I look back over my life, I have to say that the doctrines of grace and the biblical doctrine of God's total sovereignty over everything is the spark that ignited my zeal for the glory of God. And I think most of you can say that's true for you. And the reason is that it is there that I encountered God as He is. It is it's what some have uh, termed big God theology. It's not about the system of doctrine or the founders that stimulate me. It's that there, there in this doctrine, I have encountered the God of the universe as he's portrayed in the Bible. So really, it's immensely practical to believe that beyond all shadow of doubt, these words from Habakkuk, it awaits its pointed time. <laughs> God is not a God wringing his hands, hoping that all his plans will come to fruition. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The more convinced we are of this truth, the easier it will be to set aside our anxiety and to believe God. That's what faith is, to believe God, to be still and know that he is God. And then if we come to that point, even in some small measure, we will be able to do what God asks us to do here. And even really in the worst of situations, we will be able to do it. Where he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So it all comes back around to hearing the word of God and believing the word of God. For Habakkuk, this, this whole issue applies directly to his question. Returning to his question, how can God allow the wicked to prevail? God directs uh, Habakkuk's attention here uh, in verse 5 to the lives of the wicked. He says, look at the lives of the wicked. And that's our next point here is, is when we're confused about God's um, dealings with the world, we should take a moment and observe critically the lives of the wicked. Observe the lives of the wicked. Here we have a contrast between the life of the believer with the life of the proud in this text. And the question is, do the wicked really, in any cosmic sense, prevail, or are they really truly living? 
Verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So, Babylon in this text is strong drink personified. It's celebratory, it's joyous at first, but it doesn't satisfy. Strong drink, wine betrays the senses. At first, the more you drink, the better you feel, but it's a hollow pleasure with, with unkind consequences. It's never satisfying. That, that, that's Babylon. You recall the, the story from Daniel chapter 5 of God writing on the wall with his hand in the palace. That story happened because Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, was, was throwing a party. They were all drinking and he said, well, go, go get the vessels from the temple from Jerusalem and we'll drink out of those. And as they drank from the vessels from the temple from Jerusalem, they worshipped idols. So Babylon is indeed wine personified. It is drunk with power and with success. He says, His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So because that nation seems to be prevailing in Habakkuk's time, we can really understand Habakkuk's distress. Why does God allow the prosper to wicked, uh, the wicked to prosper? But God makes it plain to Habakkuk uh, that his, the face of God, the, the face of God does not shine on the Chaldeans. Yes, they are rich, they are fat, they are happy, but but God calls them here greedy drunkards, not not exactly terms of endearment. It's plain that his love is not set upon them. And we see this played out further along in Daniel chapter 5. Remember what God wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Which means that God has numbered the days of the kingdom of of Babylon and brought it to an end. God has weighed their, their deeds on a scale and they have been found to be wanting and that their kingdom is divided and going to be given to the Medes and to the Persians. So it's only successful for a time. It's a mere tool in the hands of God and not the object of God's love. At times I think we share in that perplexity of Habakkuk. Why am I as a child of God kind of barely squeaking by while these big tech executives who seem to be kind of hell-bent on supporting murder and immorality, why are these people trying to decide which summer vacation home to spend their weekend in? Or maybe we're perplexed, like Habakkuk, about the future of God's people. It seems like the church is on the verge of being swept away by a, by a tidal wave of ungodliness. Secular thought and practice pervade the church and seem to be gaining more and more ground. And worldwide, it's even worse than it is here. If we consider our brothers and sisters in China, or if we consider... Um, the cultures in, in Islamic states, we, we have to wonder how long we allowed your church to suffer. But we gain much in the way of perspective as we observe the lives of the wicked. The wicked are not blessed. And moreover, they're not satisfied. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Death, like death, he never has enough. 
the people of God, whatever we have, great or small, we have more than enough. And it may sound trite, um, but it's not. This is a truth of inexhaustible relevance. We have ample satisfaction because we have God. Consider Jeremiah. This is powerful in Lamentations. Here, I, I just picture Jeremiah. I know this is probably not the case, but I picture Jeremiah standing in the middle of Jerusalem when it's just flat and burning, and he's weeping. That's how I picture Lamentations. So in the midst, he's weeping his eyes out over the destruction of Jude, uh, Jerusalem. And this is what he says. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction in my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and it is bowed down within me. So he's not afraid to to grieve, to weep. But then listen to what he says in the midst of it. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Spoken in the ashes of the most profound tragedy that has ever occurred to Jeremiah. So I I, I say with Jeremiah, let Babylon have her riches. I'll take that thing that satisfies the soul of a man who just watched Judah eat her own children. Who saw the temple fall, who saw Zion burn. That's the treasure that I want. I'll take him a thousand times out of a thousand over jewels and gold, pretty little rocks that we dig out of the dirt. We have not been shortchanged. The achievements of the world are fruit of a gluttonous indulgence and an intoxication that never satisfies. But we are waiting on an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. So we're at times perplexed by the way God deals with his people in the world, how he kind of divvies up material goods. But when we're perplexed about that, we need to pause and consider the lives of the wicked and like Jeremiah, wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In a very real sense, this waiting on the Lord is at the heart of what it means to exercise faith, to live by faith. Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So really, the crux of this passage is to call us to faith. And our final point is that we, an exhortation is that we live by the faith of God's people. Live by the faith of God's people. God contrasts the wicked with the righteous by saying in verse 4, Behold, his soul, that is Babylon's soul, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is perhaps one of the richest verses in the Bible we could spend. I mean, this is basically what sparked the Reformation. Uh, This is quoted in Romans 1.17. But for now, I want us to consider three things. Um, First, that... Faith and pride are 
asymmetrical. <laughs> They're asymmetrical. So on the one hand, God convicts Babylon of his wicked posture. His standing with God is based on his merit, and it's not good. Babylon is proud and immoral. Behold, his soul is puffed up and not upright within him. But on the other hand, there is this category of people called the righteous. And these people, he says, live by their superior morality, their humility and innate uprightness of their souls, by their faith. You see the asymmetry there? Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by their faith. This is the beautiful asymmetry. Men are condemned by works of the law, but men are justified by faith. It's wonderfully unfair. We often complain about unfairness, but fairness would dictate that we all equally fall under the wrath of God for our lawlessness. What we have in the gospel of justification by faith is not equality. If we had equality, we would all find ourselves in hell. What we have is mercy. Now, if the righteous man lives by faith, uh, where does that righteousness come from? The text doesn't really say where this righteousness comes from, but it assumes a righteousness, and it assumes that this righteousness um, has a faith already as an essential component of it, to, to live by. The righteous person lives by his faith. And the most foundational definition of faith is believing God. And this is where righteousness comes from. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that's why I named this point, live by the faith of God's people rather than just live by faith. Because faith is kind of an amorphous, generic idea in the world. But the faith of God's people is that that Abrahamic faith, that believing God, believing his word. And it is the faith by which we are reckoned righteous. So really a good paraphrase of verse 4 might go something like, the man who has been reckoned righteous by faith shall live by that faith. Or uh, O.P. Robertson's translation, the justified shall live by his steadfast trust. Now we get into the question, what does that mean, to live by faith? Here in Habakkuk, the point is not really that we are justified by faith. It's It's that we live by the faith by which we are justified. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous with the way of the blessed man or the the way of the uh, wicked with the way of the righteous. And that way of the righteous is the way of faith, which finds expression in a couple of things. First, that faith is something that is forward-looking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Contrast that with the hedonism of the Babylonians who consume and consume all the pleasures that they can get within their reach, but there's very little forethought, very little discipline, and no wisdom to delay gratification. But faith waits on the words of the Lord. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. By our fallen nature, we are programmed to live for uh, selfishness, for immediate gratification. And this is the appeal to us of something like the the, the prosperity gospel or or dominionism. Uh, 
It's an over-realized eschatology. I want the fullness of material riches now. I want the fullness of the presence of God right now. I want perfect health right now. I want peace and harmony right now. I want the triumph of God's people right now. Pride and faith are those two different responses to the same fundamental problem, which is, I don't have what I want. Pride, which is an inward-looking disposition, takes matters into its own hands, and it says, I'm going to reach out and take what I think is rightly mine. I'm going to attain it by my efforts. Faith, on the other hand, is an outward-looking disposition. It says, I will wait on the Lord, on His words, on His promises. I will believe Him for what He has promised. Which leads us finally to a place of submission. Living by faith is, is to live submitted to God's will. You notice here in Habakkuk, God isn't specifically all that concerned to defend His actions. His basic response is, trust me. God doesn't rush in at Habakkuk's cries of distress to just fix it. A bad parent runs in at every discomfort of the child and it fixes the problem, right? But a good parent allows the child to endure some discomfort. Or in fact, a good parent puts his child in uncomfortable situations for his own good. A child might be afraid of swimming, but he's got to take swimming lessons so he doesn't die when he falls in the river. A child may find school wearisome or uncomfortable, but but he needs to be there. Children cannot see the bigger picture, and and so parents need to to, um, come in for them. And in the same way, we do not see the big picture of what God is putting us through, but we can be assured that it is good. In this we find the knowledge that God has our best future interests in mind and His eternal glory in mind. And that enables us to submit in faith to his plans. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In your future inheritance you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we live by faith when we recognize the the asymmetry of justification by faith alone. That we're made righteous through the instrument of faith and not our works. And this life of faith then causes us to be forward-looking to what God will supply and be submitted to His perfect will in the moment. This really is a timeless message because the questions which have plagued and perplexed Habakkuk perplex us today. Will God preserve his people? Will God really and truly finally exterminate evil in the world? These are all eschatological questions, end times questions. This passage really has eschatological answers. O'Palmer Robertson says, So the questions raised by Habakkuk merit an answer with an eschatological dimension. His perplexity and his probings were well directed. The coming devastation of God's own people at the hands of the Chaldeans was a matter of most solemn consequence. The final resolution of this problem would come to pass only at the eschaton. 
basically I think what he's saying is that the day that wickedness is finally vanquished from the world is the day of the Lord. That day that Jesus comes in glory to bring a reckoning against all evil and bring righteousness and bring us home. So the call of this text is believe God. Believe God. An easy concept, hard to do. If it seems slow, it awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Wait for it. So I want to close with Habakkuk's confession of faith from the end of this book. And uh, I'd ask that you take it with you as an example of what it means to, to have a posture of faith in the midst of difficulties and when we don't understand God. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Amen.